We don't normally do this, but um, based on the number of kids that went up there, if there's anybody who's qualified to work with our kids, maybe one or two extra hands who could head up and help Janice this morning. The sermon's going to suck this morning, so <laughs> you're not missing anything. So if we could get one or two, just check and see if, there's, if, if they need help, um, just because it looked like there was a, a whack load of kids up there. <laughs> Amazing. Um, if you've been coming to Southside for any amount of time and you're like, this is where I'm going to serve, this is where I'm going to worship, this is where I'm going to connect, um, then I do encourage you to, to talk to somebody about, about uh, getting on a team and serving in some kind of way, whether it's in kids or in tech or, or with hospitality or anything like that. A uh, big part of your faith is, is, uh, is contributing like a family member and helping like a family member. So reach out to me in some kind of way or Bethany and we'll get you plugged in somewhere. The most difficult sermon I ever preached... <coughs> was in a small village along the coast in Haiti. And it's actually sad. I don't know if, um, I haven't kept up with, with what's going on there. It was a community that our church was uh, um, serving uh, for many years. So I, I, I assume they're still worshiping there this morning, which is actually pretty powerful to think about. I led a team of young adults there in 2013 on a missions trip, a week-long thing. We built a ministry center, or helped build one. We just watched the Haitians actually work. Like, they're actually, it's amazing, right? We're just like a, a bunch of, like, useless young adults, like, have no idea what work even is. It's, it was amazing to, to watch. The hardest working guy in the room was embarrassed. It's my brother. He was the hardest working guy, and he was embarrassed by their work ethic, right? It was amazing. Um, so we helped do that. We harvested some moringa plants, which I don't know if you know moringa, but it's this, like, miracle plant. We led some kids' programs in the village, and then it all culminated in a Sunday morning church service. Similar to what Ian described last week, right? Where church looked very similar to that, just concrete structure, open air. And uh, it was a Sunday morning service that kind of lasted for a lot longer than we're used to. Just on a concrete slab in a small village along the coast. The same people who we brought suitcases of clothes to give to um, showed up on Sunday morning in their Sunday best. I felt like a complete dweeb. I, I was uh, in like khakis and a branded like golf shirt or something, like some white, you know, logoed golf shirt. I felt totally underdressed. We brought suitcases to, to this group of people thinking they need something and then they showed up on Sunday and they made us all look silly on that Sunday. It was, um, it was a pretty powerful moment. I remember um, trying to teach at, at church on a Sunday. Um, there's a lot of challenges with it. The heat was a challenge. Uh, being a 22-year-old youth pastor, speaking to this group of people from Canada in a village where it's like the most poor people in the world. This is three years after one of the most devastating earthquakes to ever hit any country. Over 300,000 lives lost. Just everything dismantled in that country at the time. And here I am, just you know, with my group of mostly white young adults from Canada here to help, you know, here to give you a message. It was a really weird situation. They asked me to do it. It wasn't something that I asked to do. But I felt voiceless. I didn't understand what I was there to say or what I was there really to do at that point. It felt kind of like, I'm I'm just kind of here. But what stuck out to me was um, their devotion. What stuck out to me was the sincerity and the honor that they had. In regards to Sunday, regards to Sabbath, regards to worship. I mean, they would have been there all day singing. Early in the morning, they had done, apparently they had done a service before we got there, and then there was things coming after, you know? 
And that was just, that was, that was Sabbath for them. I grew up in a post 7-Eleven climate where gas station convenience store kind of took over North America, opened seven days a week until 11 p.m. And then everything else started opening up too because, well, people realized people will go shop and buy things on Sundays. I grew up in an evangelical seeker-sensitive type church um, that was telling everybody, you know, come as you are, wear whatever you want to wear. Kind of the ideal for that movement was like, could we buy a warehouse and retrofit it to be a church? Like nobody cared about like, you know, steeples and stained glass. It was like almost anti that, right? And you guess a lot of you guys grew up with that. There's just this, this sentiment that was kind of against liturgy. It was, it was, you know, it was like the Sabbath is for man, but to the extreme, you know, like very little reverence. And, and I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but that's just the climate I grew up in. And then when we were there, I'm like looking, thinking, like if anybody, if God would, uh, would, would tell anybody to be working on Sunday, it would be the people who really need it, you know? Like we didn't need to work. We we're a bunch of white, rich people, right? We didn't need to work. And here we are like working, thinking we got to work all the time, thinking we're so important that we can't really even take a break. And I was thinking if, if, if God would um, suggest to anybody in the world to spend the Sabbath working a little bit more to provide a little bit more, you know? It would have been the Haitians that we were there to serve. He would have given them a pass at least. And I hope you understand the heart in which I'm saying that with. This morning I want to take a look at Exodus 20 and I want to zoom in on the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Pastor Ian, he uh, talked last week about the creation order and the pattern of working from rest rather than resting from work. He quoted Mark chapter 2 where Jesus teaches the disciples and the Pharisees, uh, he says that the Sabbath was actually made for man, not man for the Sabbath. One of the things I'm learning in parenting is the art of setting rules and boundaries that are actually for the benefit of my kids, you know, and holding things loosely when I should, but holding things tightly when I should. It really is an art. It's not necessarily a perfect law because ultimately the boundaries are supposed to be things that are for their benefit not um, for my benefit. Like the immature person is the person who can't understand the spirit of the law behind the law, right? But the immature person is also the one who doesn't understand the gift of the boundary, right? And that's kind of the, the, the balance there that we're trying to strike, that wisdom would suggest that we strike. Uh, this morning, I want us to see the beautiful grace, the beautiful mercy that the law was to the Israelites, and I think even in some ways to us. There's been a lot of debate in theological circles around the Sabbath, and around keeping the Sabbath, and around the Ten Commandments, and which, one of, which ones of them uh, are still like, should we hold to them today, and which ones can we dispense of, right? And I think that debate itself, we've actually, I think, lost the context in which the commandments were given, and we've lost the gift that they may actually be. And the hope is, after looking a little bit at it this morning, that we see that the fourth commandment, the commandment to rest, is, uh, is a really pivotal commandment in the list that we're all familiar with, or most of us f- are familiar with. For funsies this morning, can anybody name the ten in order? Anybody want to put yourself out there? A group of 150 adults who've been following Jesus for a long time? The ten in order? It's only 10? 
Anybody want to take, take a shot? You'll be respected for trying. Oh, you're cheating. Okay. Pastor John Davies knows he just doesn't want to flex on us this morning. We, re- we appreciate that. Something important about the context when you're leading into the, um, the 10, the big 10 that we're going to look at this morning. The Exodus story, <clears throat> which is where the Ten Commandments are found, Exodus chapter 20, and then again in Deuteronomy 6, but in the Exodus story, um, Israel had just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves and in bondage in Egypt. It says for 400 years, there's debate about it, but what we do know is that it was a long time. It was a long time that they were um, subject to the tyranny of Pharaoh. They were worked and worked and worked and worked, and there was, there was no end to it. What we know about Pharaoh is Pharaoh was a very anxious tyrant. He had all the riches in the world that you could have imagined at the time, yet he drove people to the ground to produce and produce and produce. He was afraid that it would all be lost. And so he had to keep accumulating, keep building, keep storing. Pharaoh was also revered as a god to his people, and he was asked to be revered that way. He, um, he was expected to be worshipped as a god. The entire Egyptian enterprise at times was about using slave labor to actually build uh, temples of worship and idols of worship towards Pharaoh as god. Golden icons, statues, things that we see today, the pyramids... Believe it or not, we're not built by passionate, motivated entrepreneurs getting a livable government minimum wage. They were built by slaves. And it didn't matter how many you had to go through. What mattered for him was getting it done, was producing. People were just a means for self-glorification and product. And God, he rescued the Israelites, if you know the story, from Pharaoh through the parting of the Red Sea, That's the whole Moses thing. Sea opens up. They go through. Sea closes. That's the whole story. And he rescues them into the wilderness. He gives them a promise of a land that they could reign over themselves and where God would be their king, not Pharaoh be their king. And in the middle of their journey towards that land, there's 40 years in the wilderness. And in that 40 years, God starts to teach this people what it would look like to be led by God, to have God as their king, to organize politically as though God was their king. And so part of that is actually giving things like the law. And that's where we find the law being given to Moses and to the Israelites through Moses. Now, like we've said in the past, everything in Scripture is just way more interesting than I think it appears at first reading. I don't know what kind of environment you grew up in, but but I find myself more and more enamored by the depths of Scripture, the, um, the interesting reasons why things are placed where they're placed. There's always an intention to it, especially when you're reading the Old Testament. There's everything you see. It is there for a reason. It is not just telling you a detail of the story meaninglessly. It's there for a very specific reason. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the 10 today and see a few things that are there for a reason because it's going to teach us something about the nature of God and Sabbath that I think will be a gift to us in our understanding of slowing down. So the first three commandments that we see are specifically about the nature of God 
himself, Yahweh, Israel's God. The first three commandments are very specifically about who God is. And when you're reading them, you've got to read them in contrast to Pharaoh, what kind of God Pharaoh was, what kind of king, what kind of leader Pharaoh was. That's what they're in contrast to. We know this because in the second verse in chapter 20, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I, I'm giving you this way of living, and it's in contrast to where you're coming from, the slavery and the bondage that you were in under Pharaoh. So the first three, first one is, uh, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. He goes on to say you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love and keep my commandments. So there's some echoes of some earlier stuff in there but the point is don't make graven images and idols about anything even including me. And then the third one that he says <laughs> the third one <laughs> Did I, was there fun, something funny I said? Oh, sorry. You did. Thank you. I'll be honest, I still don't understand what I said. That's why you should have gone upstairs this morning. Oh, okay. Yeah, don't do either, I guess, right? We're good. <laughs> the third one. As you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So summed up, the first three commandments out of ten, this is an important list, are basically God saying, I am God. It's Yahweh, Israel's God, saying, I am your God. I am the only God. Not Pharaoh, not anybody else, not any of the idols that you were trained to worship in Egypt. It's me, and it's me alone. Pastor Ian reminded us yesterday, uh, the first words of Scripture are, uh, in the beginning, God. Right? God pre-existed all things and is above all things. It's the God above all. I was, I am, and I will always be is what God says. So before you do anything, put me in your proper put me in my proper place is what he's saying here. Now the fact that there's three commandments all essentially saying the same thing is important. It is not to be lost on us. In Hebrew culture to repeat something three times means that you really mean it. It's a sign of fullness, it's a sign of completeness, it's a sign of perfection. And so the first 3 out of 10 that God gives to Moses He's saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. Perfect, holy, complete, none other is the most important thing you can start with, is that I am God. Then we have the following seven. And if you read the following seven, you'll hear echoes from last week's creation narrative of the first six days and then on the seventh God rested, except for we have it in reverse order this week when we see it. The following seven starts with Sabbath rest. The fourth command is Sabbath rest. God transitions from the first three about who he is. I am God, I am God, I am God, with the fourth commandment to Sabbath. 
Walter Brueggemann, in his work called Sabbath as Resistance, he calls the fourth commandment the, cru- uh, the crucial bridge between the nature of God and the way that you live in community. He says that it forces you to look backwards at the first three. I am God, I am God, I am God. And then therefore, look at the next six. Therefore, how do I live in community? So the fourth command in the Big Ten is this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servants or your animals or the foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. In Egypt there was no rest. In Egypt, for hundreds of years, there was no Sabbath. There was no stopping production. You stopped when you died, right? And somebody came along to replace you. People in Egypt were dispensable. They were slaves. They were means to an end. Pharaoh's self-importance was on the line. That's why it matters to him. People didn't matter to him. His own self-importance mattered to him. So you just worked nonstop. As a matter of fact, there was no seven-day calendar in Egypt. I believe they worked on a 10-day calendar, which is a nice, clean, even 10, like the metric system, which makes a lot more sense. I was watching Twitter this week, and literally this week on Twitter, something that was trending is, why do we have a seven-day week? We, it's, it's, so, it's a prime number. There's no way to divide it up evenly. We can't do things every other day and still do them on the same day. People were whining and complaining about the seven-day week. There was this outrage about the seven-day week. They're saying we should change it to a six-day week or a 10-day week, right? And then somebody chimed in like, oh, that's, you know, because of the Judeo-Christian value of Sabbath, right? The, the seven-day calendar that we live in today, it's not actually connected to any particular lunar cycle or any cycle around the sun. It is literally from a Judeo-Christian worldview. That's why we have the seven-day cycle, and that's why we live out of it. It's funny that people don't realize that, and they don't understand how much of our culture and our lifestyle and our calendar is actually influenced by the Judeo-Christian worldview. Anyway. The commandment of Sabbath is a socioeconomic command on the basis of a different God than Israel was used to for hundreds of years. This is a God of relationship, not a God of productivity. This is a God that is sovereign and has control over everything, not a God who's afraid of losing control at any given moment. This is a God of mercy and a God of love a God of kindness and gentleness, where work is a gift. It's not a means to an end of personal security or self-glorification. Brueggemann, he goes on to say that the Sabbath rest of God is the acknowledgement that God and God's people in the world are not commodities to be dispatched for endless production. Rather, they're subjects situated in an economy of neighborliness. I love that language. In other words, the world's pace, we've been talking about this, the speed of love. The world's pace is a pace of production, a pace of material gain, a pace of personal security, a pace of trusting solely in your ability to produce. Or it's a pace of trusting the government to take care of you. Either of them are idols that are going to fall 
short according to scripture and Yahweh, Israel's God. But the people of God are called to a pace of neighborliness. We're called to build an economy of neighborliness. That's the language that he used. I just think it's brilliant, brilliant language. Brueggemann in his talk, he goes on to contrast between Pharaoh and Yahweh's economy and compares it to the modern day market ideology that we all swim in the culture waters, cultural waters of. He uses this brilliant language and it fits perfectly in our ongoing conversation about the speed of love. He goes on to say, it is impossible to overestimate the level of anxiety that now characterizes social relationships in our society of acute restlessness. That violent restlessness makes neighborliness nearly impossible. The invitation with Sabbath is to cultivate a lifestyle of rest. It's to cultivate and create a system of neighborliness, a system that affords our neighbors to rest as well so that we can rest together. It's a system of relationship. It says that's first and foremost. That's primary. Everything we do comes after that. It is not for me to get rest in contrast to you. It's not for me to fight with you so I can get a vacation, but you have to work. It's a, hey, we're all agreeing that we are going to rest together. We're all agreeing to stop production. We're all agreeing that everyone is entitled to rest and to start working from a place of rest because we're all equal under God in his economy. That's at least what the principle of Sabbath is. It's an invitation to seeing your neighbor as an equal, not as a commodity, not as slave labor to your end or your benefit. And when we live by Sabbath, we see all people, all things, all food, all possessions as a gift from God. That's what it does. It forces us to see things that way. Because when we Sabbath, we look at the first three commands. I'm God, I am God, I am God. All this is mine. It's not yours. And then we start seeing things in our work week in its proper context. We start to work from rest, like Pastor Ian talked about last week, rather than the other way around. When we live by Pharaoh's death system, when we live by our economic ideology that is so current in our day, we are bound to dishonor our parents or dishonor those who are unproductive family members, right? Get on board, contribute. What are you doing, you lazy slug? We're bound to engage in violence with those we perceive as a threat. We see others as competition and as threats to our security. We reduce sexual interaction to an exploitive commodity. That's what pornography is. We usurp others for things that we want. We tackle people at Walmart on Black Friday. We don't do that. Americans do that. You Americans. Shame on you. Oh. We tell little white lies or stretch the truth to make a sale or gain an advantage. It's what we do. We get sucked into the vortex of attention-robbing advertising strategies that are, marked, or that are masked as social networking. Right? I do. Woo! That hurts. But for those who keep Sabbath, those who recognize Sabbath, those who observe Sabbath, we recognize God as God, and we work from rest. And if we do that, this is the invitation. Well, we'll honor our mother and our father, regardless of how productive they are. We won't see them as a burden to a system. We won't see those who are retired and living on Social Security as a burden to us. We'll honor them for the work that they've put in. We won't murder. 
It's not just about not murdering. It's about treating people with dignity, like they're humans and like they're equal. It's never a right decision to take the life of somebody else in order to spare our own. We won't commit adultery. That's what the other command is, right? You're recognizing this list. We won't steal. We won't feel the need to steal. All our security is found in God. We won't give false testimony against our neighbor. We don't feel the need to lie or be dishonest, right? Or stretch the truth to make a sale. We don't, because our security is not found in this economy of production. And we won't covet our neighbor's house. We won't sit on Instagram all day, coveting everything that we can't afford, being sold everything that isn't ours. It goes on to say you won't covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That will be the fruit of Sabbath. Do you see that? The beginning is, I am God, I am God, I am God. Now stop and rest and recognize that, because then you're going to go be a neighbor. If you start there, the Sabbath is the, is, the, is, the, is the reorientation, the refocus of your heart and your mind towards then, how do I live? Well, and that's what the rest of the Ten Commandments are about. It's a beautiful way to see the Ten, huh? Brueggemann says, as we wrap up today, that Sabbath declares in bodily ways that we will not participate in the anxiety system that pervades our social environment. We won't be defined by busyness or acquisitiveness or by the pursuit of more. It declares in bodily form that we trust Jesus at his word for the Christian. And Jesus' word in Matthew chapter 6 is very explicit. We're going to read that. says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the fields. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will ye not more cl- uh, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans, they run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. So is the Sabbath a binding command? Or the Ten Commandments, a way more interesting set of propositions when we take a deeper glance. Do you see that Sabbath is for you? It's not just for you. It rescues you from the slavery and the bondage of a production economy. And the beautiful thing is it actually rescues our neighbors. Our neighbors in this city are so desperate for some rest, just like you are. They have no alternative way of seeing things. They have no alternative way of pursuing. They have no alternative way of living. Right? You have an answer to that angst and rest that they're seeking. I went to Woodbine yesterday. Has anyone been to the fantasy fair lately? Yeah, no. Yeah, you have, right? (laughs) Oh... It is, it's a treat. Um, I used to go there when I was a child with my grandparents. 
And uh, it hasn't changed a single bit in 30 years. Believe it or not, it's like stepping into a time capsule. Um, the saving grace is that the, uh, the, the Ferris wheel doesn't, they don't run it. Because if they did, you'd hear about deaths on a <laughs> weekly basis on the thing. So, <clears throat> But everything else hasn't changed like one bit. It's wild. Like no new rides, nothing really renovated. The, the play structure is as dusty as it was when I was seven years old going there. It's really shocking. It's amazing, and it's, and it's also shocking. But we went with some friends. It was busier than ever. It was wildly busy. It was incredible. I mean, it's March break. It's a Saturday, but still. I thought there's no way anybody still goes to this place and, and pays astronomical amounts of money to do this, and they do. We had friends who invited us. Um, they were very generous to us, taking us there just to spend some time together. They're friends that we uh, met when we uh, planted a church in, K- in Caledon. They were next to our neighbors. It was, a, it was a lovely time with them and their family. We were, uh, we were standing in line for the train. It took us 40 minutes. If you know Woodbine, right? That little train. It took us 40 minutes in line just to get on that silly little train. It was worth every second, though. <coughs> we get to the front of the line. And uh, it's, all, it's our turn next. The train arrives, and we're just standing there waiting. And there's, um, there's two moms with their, like, maybe two- or three-year-old daughters still sitting in their seats. They refuse to unbuckle their buckles. And so the conductor comes up, and she goes, like, hey, you got to get off the train. And they're like, well, my kid wants to ride again, so can't we just stay on, right? And everyone in line, you're, you can imagine everyone's watching this going, oh, no. But they were insistent. They are like, well, I can't, I can't, I can't just taking my kid. They want to go. I, I don't know what to do. It was, it was sad. They felt helpless. Right? Every parent in the room's like, pick that child up and take them out of here. But they were like, oh man, they really want to go. So it was like a good three, four minutes of us standing there watching them go back and forth with this poor, like maybe teenager, young adult conductor lady. Not even a real conductor, right? It's a train at <laughs> Woodbine. Right? She's just this poor girl is like, I can't let you do that. Like, there's rules. And like, can you just break it this one time kind of thing? And so she, uh, she held out, which was, uh, which was amazing. And uh, we were all thankful for that. <laughs> we were looking at it thinking like, yeah, that's what we do, isn't it? We see the rule. We see it as oppressive, right? What, you won't, I'm already on the train. Just let me go again, Right? Well, the rules isn't there for a reason, right? If you let that family stay on the train, chaos would ensue. You can imagine the chaos that would ensue. There was a big sign at the bumper cars that said, nobody in line, and somebody butted in line, and I couldn't help myself, <laughs> right? And I'm a pastor, right? I'm not supposed to, right? You can imagine just utter chaos, right? So... Anyway, they eventually got off the train, and the girls cried, and it was fine, but we were all like, good job, you held out. <laughs> we all got on our train, and we all rode together. And it, did, it, it gave me this picture, right? The rule is there for a reason, right? The boundary is there for a reason. The boundary of Sabbath, the rule of Sabbath, is there for a reason. It is a gift to you. The reason why you can't just stay on the train while everyone else waits is because everyone will hate you, right? Because you are... You are, you are putting yourself before them. You are putting your needs above theirs. The, and and, and every, you, you'll lose all your friends. It's not a neighborly way to live. And so the sacrifice that you make is you'll live in accordance with the boundaries. They're there for a purpose, and they're there for a reason. And, and today I want you to just walk away with seeing the Ten Commandments, and particularly the Sabbath command, as a gift for you. Like Ian said, it is for you. It is so that you love your neighbor better. 
It's so that you have more love to give. And it's also so that you can invite them also into the rest that they so desperately need. I want to leave you with an image that a friend of mine posted. She uh, travels to, uh, to New Zealand, posted it this morning, I saw, and there was something really compelling about it. So as the worship team comes up and starts playing, just sit with this for just a minute. Let that seep a little bit deeper into your heart, and uh, we're going to worship together, treating this morning like a gift to us to worship together, to slow down, and to see God as God.